this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, why uh, do we not coil the sack? I knew we didn't, I knew that we didn't need to coil the sack, but is it, was it harmful? Like, you know, why not? Right. Yeah. Or like we deliberately avoiding it or is it just like the feeding artery is adequate? That's right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and it just never got there, I guess, in my thought process until I was doing it myself. And what I came to learn is that it's wasteful time, it's wasteful money, but it's also can be really difficult to assess the PABM sack for regression or for persistence you know, after the procedure on imaging. So yeah, if you throw a bunch of metallic coils into it. That's right. And so since it's not necessary, I would, I would heavily, you know, suggest not doing it because it, it can be really challenging and it takes up a lot of time for absolutely no benefit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. My name is Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. Rethink embolization with one device, the Medtronic MVP microvascular plug system. Learn more about this embolic agent as an alternative to coils. Visit medtronic.com slash MVP. Today, we have Dr. Teresa Caridi with us, um, one of my old attendings. Very excited to have her. The topic today is pulmonary arteriovenous malformations, which we're just going to call AVMs from here on out. Teresa, glad to have you. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I've been uh, a fan of this podcast for a while, and I met Aaron way back several years ago at uh, Western Angio Society when things were really starting to steamroll for you all. And so I'm glad to, to finally be a part of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Will will you, for our listeners who do not know you, will you just give us a little bit about your background, where you are, and what your current practice looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So I was at Georgetown for seven years as faculty, and then I recently made a transition to University of Alabama at Birmingham back in July, so about six months ago. And, you know, prior to that, I would say my practice was heavily women's health in terms of an elective practice, but of course, Georgetown was a uh, transplant center. We did a lot of portal hypertension work, those kinds of things. So did it all, but, you know, elective practice wise, heavily women's health, and then also kind of this niche area of pulmonary ABMs, as well as some renal cancer work and stuff like that. So that was, I would say that's my, you know, areas of interest. And um, now that I'm at UAB, I'm the division director there and still building my clinical practice, but we are undergoing the process of sort of establishing an interest and in becoming an HHT center of excellence. Well, I'm sure we'll get into HHT as we talk more, but point is uh, I'm continuing my women's health practice, uh, still like men's health as well in terms of the, the counterparts in men, varicoceles and prostate artery embolization, and then trying to grow this area as well. That includes PABMs. Okay. Just out of curiosity, like whenever you move from being an attending at Georgetown to like a like section head over at UAB, like how much do you get pulled in different directions in terms of like being able to still like participate? Like how much of like the, does the leadership role like like bleed into like not being able to like do like the just the regular nuts and bolts practice of IR? Yeah, I would say I underestimated how much it would. Yeah. I, I think I'm given the appropriate support and and non-clinical time to to do that well during the week, I guess, but it bleeds over a lot more into nights and weekends. But it's it you know, it's kind of similar when you start off in practice, 
you don't have a lot of after hour time or, um, you know, nights and weekend time that you are worried about patients or, you know, these kinds of things, because you don't have a established patient practice. As you go on, it's harder to disconnect entirely at, on nights and weekends and, and during vacations. And I, and I kind of liken it to the same thing when you have a really robust practice, you, you're already sort of that way. And then this just adds a whole other level to it. Um, so it's kind of the, you know, right now I don't have that really robust personal practice at UAB. So it's kind of taken that, that uh, spot, I would say, and, and is, is really big in terms of a time commitment. You know, there's, I would say little fires every day and, mm-hmm. and sometimes big fires. And you can go from thinking you're going to have an entire non-clinical day to really hammer down some academic work and actually get to get to none of it. So it's, it's definitely an adjustment and it's a learning process and sometimes just learning when, when things need to be dealt with and when you can kind of put them off and, and focus on what you, what you plan to get done. So definitely uh, taking it in stride, you know, standing on shoulders of mentors and, and getting as much information as I can from them and peers even uh, who are in the same space and, uh, and trying to do the best that I can to, to manage time. Yeah, that's awesome. It's always struck me is that people are in, in these uh, leadership roles. It's, it's just it just to me seems like having two jobs when really like there's still only like, you know, for us, like a 60 hour work week. I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. Um, it's kind of like having a podcast and trying to be an interventional <laughs> radiologist. It's the same thing. Right, you know, right. They're not really paid for. I'm sure you guys do fine, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I watched your hundredth, your hundredth episode where you talked a little bit about this. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's it's, you know, most leadership roles, it, you get a leadership stipend of some sort but it's not significant. It definitely doesn't, it it doesn't pay for the amount of work that you do, but that's, that, that's not the point. You know, you're typically these people that go into leadership want to do servant type leadership. And, and similarly, um, when you have something like this, you know, you guys have an interest in educating interventional radiologists in all spaces and kind of having a, a way that, you know, whether you're a private practice or an academic academician or whatever it might be, where we all can be on sort of the same playing field with information. And, and so that's a service that you're doing. And it's similar, I would say. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Although I don't know if I would compare being the section head at UAB to like putting on this podcast, but, but thank you. We'll take that. You get, you get the correlation. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes, yes. All right. So jumping into uh, pulmonary AVMs, I just thought we'd like take a step back. And if you could just talk about you know, give us like broad strokes for the uninitiated in like what exactly pulmonary AVM is. Like, is it a common problem? How often does it come up? And and then what part it, it plays either in your in your current practice or, or right before you stepped into uh, a new position over UAB, maybe at Georgetown? Sure. So PAVMs, they're high pressure lesions. And essentially what they are is a connection between the pulmonary artery and pulmonary vein that, you know, doesn't have a normal intervening capillary bed. So anything you can think of can go through that feeding arteries directly into the veins. So they're right to left shunts. And, and that's the biggest issue with them. And, and, you know, the biggest consequence is paradoxical embolus, whether it be air or clot or, or bacteria. So, you know, when we talk about PAVMs, though, we, there's, uh, we can talk about them as a single PAVM and, and, and whether they're congenital or acquired. But as most people know, most of the congenital PAVMs are seen in patients with HHT. So they're not a spontaneous congenital AVM in most cases. So it's very hard to have a discussion about PAVMs without really diving into HHT as well. And we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about that some. But what my practice looked like before I came to UAB was that I was trying to make, uh, trying to go through the process of Georgetown becoming an HHT center of excellence as well. It's a little closer to some other centers of excellence. So, you know, maybe not as needed as someplace like UAB. Um, however, 
people who live in DC think that uh, Baltimore is, you know, states away yeah. because of the traffic. So it certainly was was a heavily populated enough area and considered a distance enough that that was possible. The difficulty in creating an HHT center of excellence is you got to have all the right specialists and they all have to have experience. So in any case, my practice there was really in treating PAVMs, treating HHT patients, but making sure to loop them into a center of excellence while we were undergoing the process of becoming one. So like if, if I just played the role of like a, a naive kind of referring doc who like picks up like a pulmonary ABM, like just out in the community and, you know, it's small, like it feels like it's like a centimeter and it's not a big deal, but then you make a referral to an IR physician. Can you kind of play out like what that conversation looks like, why it's important to triage these patients appropriately, like either an HH10, HHT center or someone who's familiar with PAVM treatment and why it's important to treat these lesions? Yeah, absolutely. So the most important reason to treat them is that roughly 70% of people who have a PAVM have some kind of clinical manifestation in their lifetime. So, you know, you know, and the most feared one, of course, is a paradoxical embolus. So regardless of whether a patient has any symptoms whatsoever, they, they should be treated because of the risk of paradoxical embolus, which can lead to stroke, TIAs, brain abscess, or, or even um, slightly less commonly, abscess in other, other locations in the body. So important for, to be treated. If you're someone who is interested in treating them, and I think I, all IRs should really have the skill set, not just an interest, but the skill set. And the reason why is because these HHT centers of excellence aren't everywhere. That's number one. Number two, not all patients have HHT and don't need to go to an HHT center of excellence. And number three, you know, if you if you get someone who does have a PAVM and they have HHT, they may not want to go to an HHT center of excellence. So, you know, if there's not one in your state, they may be concerned about health insurance coverage, travel, those kind of things. They may not have the resources. So you really kind of got to be familiar with, you know, everything from a simple PAVM all the way to, you know, when to send them to an HHT center of excellence, when to test them for HHT, you know, and what to do when you get down that, that path. So I think it's now a good time as any to kind of talk about HHT or hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. Will you just kind of tell us like what is the, like we've we've mentioned it a couple of times. What's what's the relationship between HHT and pulmonary AVMs and and also along that same vein, like whenever you're seeing your patients for a PAVM consult, what are some of the screening questionnaire questions that you might ask them, or, or like how does your like preclinical workup kind of go from there? Yeah, absolutely. So. HHT, you know, it's a genetic disorder and it's autosomal dominant, meaning, you know, people inherit it from one of their parents. And so about 50% of offspring have it. And what it is exactly is, is essentially the genes that are involved in this disorder, I should say, are those that are crucial in the signaling pathway for vascular production. So, you know, we, most of the, or several of the genes are known that affect a patient who has HHT, not all. But in any case, you know, these, the, the manifestation of this is uh, tail injectasias and arteriovenous malformations at various sites in the body. So they can have anything from, you know, visceral lesions like you see with PAVMs or hepatic AVMs or gastrointestinal AVMs, which lead to bleeding or, and less commonly cerebral AVMs, or, you know, they can have uh, mucous membrane and nasopharyngeal telangiectasias. And the biggest manifestation of that is, is spontaneous and recurrent epistaxis. So lots of possible manifestations for someone who does have HHT. Now, you know, when, when you see patients, 
for pulmonary ABMs, you're going to get the spectrum. So it just really depends on how they present to you and who they get sent from. More than likely, you know, the I think the helpful information that we can talk about is, is how they are more than likely to present. And those are uh, more than likely going to come from a pulmonologist who gets a patient who has a PAVM and knows that the standard of care for treatment is embolization, and they're going to send it to you that way. Yeah, well, I, I think like that that's like the most, because re- they can they can come to you in a lot of different ways. But one, like kind of touch on like what was the most common referral pattern that like you've seen? And then also the most common way that they, you know, you think that they kind of get referred out into the community. And then from there, like you can kind of go launch into like, okay, so how do you work those, those patients up? Like in the most common referral pattern, like, you know, we're, I'm trying to operate outside of like, you know, someone like who's at an HHT center, who's getting like these patients very teed up whenever it gets to them. Like some, it's something I might present more like at like a a community uh, doc. That's right. Yeah. And I I mean, certainly people that are at an HHT center don't need to hear me wax eloquently about what to do with those patients, you know? So, so what happens most of the time, I would say uh, most typically is you'll, you'll get a patient from a pulmonologist. So an abnormality is often found on CT that is done for completely different reasons. And usually it's a PAVM that's found and a pulmonologist will refer you that patient for embolization. So, you know, they come to you with a CT. So you skip that whole pathway of like, of, you know, a contrasted saline, agitated saline echocardiography or echocardiogram, which we can talk about that stuff, but that's usually going to be much more applicable to an HHT center of excellence where they start at baseline, you know, needing an entire workup. Most of the time in, in the community or even at an academic setting, that's not a center of excellence. Um, you're going to get a PAVM referred to you from a pulmonologist. That's really typical. Okay. If it comes through a primary care, they almost always, a primary care physician almost always is going to send it to a pulmonary doc before it's going to get you know to you. Sure. So that is really by far and away the most common referral. Yeah. And then so now that the patient's been referred to you, so you have some cross-sectional imaging, in your opinion or whoever's opinion, it's diagnostic of a PABM. When you're first seeing that patient in clinic, you know, what does your workup look like? Yeah. So um, you have to be able to at least, you know, screen the patient for HHT so that you know whether this is going to be a single treatment that you can follow up and feel confident in your treatment algorithm and and your follow-up algorithm, or if you need to, you know, raise the bar in terms of their treatment. So what I do is I go through the Curacao criteria, which are, can be diagnostic for HHT. So that's four criteria. Um, happy to launch into those if you want yeah, me think, to. Yeah, okay. actually, yeah. I, I don't know how to pronounce it like as, as well as you, like whenever I look at it, like spelled Curacao. That's how I say it. I hope that's correct. That's how yeah, I've always yeah. said it. That's how I learned it. So, oh, and I, good, and I trained with Scott Trertola, who's, you know, obviously one of the experts in uh, PABM so he, treatment. So he probably knows. Okay. That's fair. He statement. probably knows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So, yeah. So let's talk about the criteria. Yeah. So the criteria, I mentioned a couple of them along the way, but visceral ABMs. So like we talked about, whether they're pulmonary, cerebral, hepatic, ABMs, all those, or GI. And then mucocutaneous telangiectasias. As another criteria. Third one is a first degree relative with HHT. And uh, the last is spontaneous and recurrent epistaxis, which is really common, happens in about 90% of HHT patients. And, and it's key to know that it's got to be spontaneous. So it's not a little kid digging in their nose or something like that, you know, spontaneous and, and recurrent. And these are pretty profound episodes of bleeding. And do they often happen at night, like nocturnal epistaxis? 
Yeah, that's right. You know, it's interesting in my practice. Um, nobody, nobody ever follows the textbook, but that's the, that's the classic teaching. Mm-hmm. And as far as like the, so already when they come to you, they've already fulfilled or, or presumably they're one of four for the criteria. So how many criteria do you need to um, suggest that this person needs an additional genetic testing for HHT? That's right. So you're, you're absolutely correct. You already got one of them. And then you just ask the right questions and do a physical exam to look for the others. And what you want, what you really want to know is, you know, do they have two or more? If they have two or more, you want to send them down the pathway of at least recommend that they get genetic testing. Obviously, that's a decision they have to make, particularly if they have offspring. You know, I tend to recommend it. Some people have refused it. They just, you know, it's fearful to know and they don't have other manifestations of it at that time. And so they're not interested, but certainly two or more, you want to, you want to recommend it. Three is diagnostic technically, just with the Curacao criteria alone. Okay. So aside from the, the Curacao criteria, what are some of the other things that you're going to start uh, asking your patient or wanting to know about your patient in terms of just getting them prepped? Like you decided that, you know, they have a pulmonary AVM, they may or may not have HHT. Um, but what are some of the other things that you want to know is either in your history or physical, like before moving forward with actual treatment? Yeah, it's actually, it's more, um, you know, what things I want them to be cautious about between when I see them and when they get treated and actually lifelong. So, you know, some of the big things are, you know, patients getting IVs or injections for any reason, they need to be careful about air bubbles as well as clots. They need to be cautioned that in any procedure that can cause bacteremia, that they need to be on antibiotics. And the one that people miss and is actually one of the most likely to be an issue is dental procedures. Mm-hmm. And so whether they're treated, their PABM is treated or not, and whether they have HHT or not, they technically need to be on uh, lifelong precautions for introduction of air and lifelong preca- or clot and lifelong precautions for um, antibiotics for procedures. And the reason why that is, is because we know that even though we do a good job of treating PABMs, even if person only has a single one, there is a certain, you know, percentage that recur. And also that, you know, we, we, we think that people are are, once their lungs are mature and fully grown, that they don't develop new PAVMs, but that you know some imperceptible ones can grow to a degree that they're um, at risk. And so, whether a person has HHT or not, you know, and w- even if it's a single PAVM that you're going to treat, they really need those precautions. Okay. So after the counseling is done, it, can we talk about some of the things that you look at? Like, say you have like, what is your ideal amount of imaging or cross-sectional imaging that you have? to assess just kind of the mechanics of what you want to know before you embolize uh, a PAVM or or even if you know if they're a candidate for embolization, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would say, you know, there's not really a lot of just like the rest of IR. I always tell my trainees Mm -hmm. this, absolute contraindications don't really exist. It's like, what's the worst, what's the risk benefit, right? So with this procedure, it's similar. So you know, what I look at is, of course, they, again, they almost always present to you with a CT when you're in a, not in a center of excellence. So you want to evaluate their PAVM for its feeding artery size. And you can really utilize that CT to look at, you know, whether it's a simple PAVM. So meaning it has one single feeder, arterial feeder, or whether it's a complex PAVM, which is less common, about 20% of PAVMs. And that means, you know, can have multiple feeders from different segments, basically. And there's a small subset of, of complex PAVMs that are called diffuse AVMs, which 
gets into sort of a whole different category. And we can talk about those as in terms of, you know, probably referring to someone who's who's treated a fair amount of PABMs and not taken those lesions on as commonly in a more of a community type setting. Sure. We'll, we'll circle back to like the diffuse uh, AVMs, but we'll, we'll talk about like um, mainly, you know, your most common lesions that are going to be teed up for uh, treatment by like a community IR doc. Yeah. And those are your simple PAVMs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those are the most important aspect of imaging is looking for location, you know, just like anything else, utilizing all the information you have to make your procedure shortened. And then also knowing that feeding artery size, you'll measure it again, of course, in pulmonary angiography, but that's going to be the key to sort of building your system in terms of what you think you're going to need equipment wise and how accessible you think it's going to be, how big of a catheter you think you're going to be able to get there, those kind of things. Okay, great. Is there anyone, this may be get in, like we kind of touch on diffuse pulmonary VMs, but is there anyone like when you look at the cross-sectional imaging, you think this isn't a good idea to treat, or this would be a, a better fit for someone who's got a lot of experience with these lesions? Like, can you tell anything off cross-sectionally where you're going to, where you feel like you might be walking into a landmine, like some, some tips on like which ones like that maybe if you're not doing a lot of these, maybe like a better idea to like uh, send out. Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it when you said, you know, diffuse ABMs, you've got to really know that, you know, you're going to be useful. And most people will go in and pick off the biggest feeders to those, but more than likely they're going to need a, you know, a surgical consultation, at least to consider that as an option. And that really needs to be someplace that's familiar with it. You know, a lot of this is about making sure you have the right resources and other specialties. So it's not so much about your own skill or your own understanding, but the comprehensive care. And and sometimes I've been in that situation where I think I can uh, deal with the the anatomic component of whatever it is I'm I'm going in to treat PAVM wise, but you know I've been sort of left out there to, by myself in terms of having um, the right resources and other specialties. But there's not much that I look at on a CT that really dissuades me other than that kind of complexity. And then also you know there's two other I guess categories of patients in general that I think about not treating and. And those are, or different ways of treating, I guess is the best way of saying it. So for children, you really want to wait till mid-adolescence to treat these patients. And and the reason for that is because if they're asymptomatic, their likelihood of having a major event has been shown to be very low. Mm -hmm. And so you want to keep them from undergoing frequent screenings and with radiation anyway, and also treatments until they're uh, fully grown. And so mid-adolescence is sort of the key there. Pregnant patients are also a, a special consideration, and and those, just like in a lot of the procedures we do in IR, the best time to treat those is during second trimester, mm-hmm. and and kind of knowing that it is important to treat those because some of the worst complications can can be exacerbated in pregnancy with PABMs. So that those are sort of my you know it's not really about the CT so much other than in the diffuse type PABMs. It's more those cl- those classes of patients and knowing. Uh, when to treat them, and when to recruit help. Okay, that's fair. So getting into kind of the pre-procedural preparation for things, is there anything to talk about with regards to just getting your patient set up for the procedure? Like, I, you know, I, I think this would be one where, you know, I don't think like you just have a nurse like place an IV like like you would in the GPOP. And so like, is there along those lines, like how do you get your patient ready for surgery, like, or sorry, ready for the procedure the day of the procedure? Yeah, good question. So I 
first of all, I'll tell you one of my biggest recommendations in treating these, and this is true of a lot of IR procedures, is having a set of notes someplace. I keep mine on my on my phone, mm-hmm. you know, just in like the notes tab of this, the steps that I have to remember because they're crucial in some of the procedures we do. And this is one of them. And the the steps, the pre-procedure steps that are that are critical are are four, I would say. And they're I always think about that being four Curacao criteria and four steps that I don't want to forget prior to a PABM treatment. And I do, these are all considerations for the day of. So you want an EKG. And the reason why you want an EKG is if the patient has left heart block and you're going to traverse the heart, you, you want to know that in advance. Two, you want to know, you want to make sure to use antibiotics. So obviously you've counseled them about antibiotics, but it's important for your procedure as well. And I, I typically use ANSEF. Okay. Three, you want to use heparin during your procedure because just like, you know, we get a lot of pericatheter thrombus in procedures and you want to avoid that being a paradoxical embolus. Okay. And then lastly, as you kind of alluded to, you want to be careful before the procedure that you're not going to be the one to introduce air. So that pre-procedure anyway, that's talking to your staff about, you know, this patient is a high risk and being careful about any air bubbles introduced via the IV. Now, at Centers of Excellence, they use bubble filters, but my understanding has been that when I talk to individuals at Centers of Excellence, that they're not very widely available or easy to obtain for most hospitals. I, I don't really know the reason why that is, but in any case, you know, you'll find yourself in any, almost in any setting outside an HHT center without a bubble filter. You can use blood filters, okay. but I, I found success in just education. Okay. All right. How about anesthesia needs with this procedure? Um, moderate sedation, local only, sometimes as, as much as MAC, I mean, or does it just depend on the patient? Yeah, it, I think it's no different than any other IR procedure where moderate sedation in this case is is really just about making the patient comfortable because the procedure can be a little lengthy. It's not a painful procedure, but anxiety alone, you know, is a good enough reason for me to use moderate sedation. Now, the only time I utilize anesthesia is if a patient has a compromised airway or a reason to not have moder- moderate sedation, which could apply to any IR procedure. So, you know, they're just someone who has extensive lung disease, extensive cardiac disease, you know, or a high risk because of their ASA or malampotty is the best way of putting it. And those individuals, I would consult anesthesia and whether we decide to use various forms of anesthesia, you know, all really work fine. If you're going to utilize them, probably best to just to go ahead and go the full route and go general anesthesia with the endotracheal tube, just because, you know, breath holds can be really helpful. You know, for large PAVMs, you're going to see them really easily, mm-hmm. but for smaller PAVMs, they can be a little challenging. And, you know, you're, you know, we can talk about this too, but you want to kind of, just like any other pulmonary angiography, you probably want to increase your frame rate. You want to do obliquities if needed, that kind of thing, but certainly having a good breath hold can be helpful. So that's that was actually what I was kind of driving at is that sometimes it's helpful to keep these patients a little light, at least until you've done some like of your starting out angiography and like you have like your route mapped out because the, the breath hold maneuver can be like particularly and sometimes like you go early and you snow them, then, you know, it can be a little I mean, not that it I mean, usually you can get through, but it can be a little bit. It's sometimes helpful just to have that breath hold like at the original angiography. Absolutely. Um, so getting into the procedure. Will you take us through, I mean, we can break it down a little bit, but so starting out access site, uh, yeah. IJ, femoral. 
I'm a femoral advocate. I learned that way. And a lot of it has to do with training, but also just, you know, these procedures are long and working along the, mm-hmm. the lower extremity is just so much easier, um, you know, than working from the IJ. I actually have never performed these procedures from the IJ, but I know there are some people who, who do just like there's, there are people who do like filters from one versus the other, or sure. I guess that's not as good of an example as maybe, uh, you know, varicocele embolization from one or the other, those kind of things, um, where okay. it's a little bit more lengthy. Okay. So yeah, femoral vein access. I usually uh, utilize an eight French sheath just so I have lots of options for what I put through it. Okay. And it's a venous puncture, so not too worried about increasing the size there. I Yeah, eight French sheath. I usually use a short sheath, especially if I have my preferred equipment, which is the white Lumax set. I'm not sure how much familiarity there is with that, but it's been around for a long time. Um, It went off the market briefly, but it's back. And essentially that's a coaxial guide catheter with an inner five French catheter. There's variations on it, but roughly it's the guide, the guide catheter is seven or eight French. I use typically use the eight French one, 80 centimeters. And then the inner catheter is typically a five French catheter, like a short angled tip and Mm a hundred centimeters in length. But you know, once you've got that um, in place, if that short angled catheter is not working for you, you can always switch it out through the guide cath for any hundred centimeter five French catheter. So, you know, I really like the the Lumax white set, but I kind of s- skipped a step there. Yeah. Before we you even get to that, you know, just getting pulmonary artery access. Um, yes. Yes. So some people like who, like, I mean, this isn't an area that you're always working in. And so will you kind of take, or just give some brief tips about like, how to access the pulmonary artery, pulmonary angiography, and, and then we can talk about whether or not you take pressures beforehand. Sure. Yeah. So I like to use an angled pigtail catheter and five French or six French is fine or even seven French, you know, and I, I think it works really well. Occasionally I have had to switch to like a four French glide catheter and just a glide wire. And it seems that when, when an angled pigtail catheter doesn't work, that seems to work really well. You don't want, you don't want to do that necessarily because of, you know, you can catch on to things and that's the whole point and not using wire access through the heart and uh, using something like a, like a angled pigtail catheter so that you're not catching on to every little thing in the heart and uh, not causing arrhythmias. So an angled pigtail catheter is the preferred method, but you know, when you got to go in the other direction and you're, you're wasting time and, and, and not getting where you need to get, certainly using some MacGyvering techniques like we all do in IR sure. is, is acceptable. So angled pigtail catheter, you kind of get yourself situated in the, at the eight, lower atrial cable junction. And uh, it's a, what Scott Teratola taught me and I think works really well is a clockwise twist of the wrist okay. uh, as you propel the catheter forward. And it really, it, it should be one swift maneuver and it, and it works most of the time. And you end up in the pulmonary outflow track. And then from there, you know, you want to, you want to have a wire in mind. That's an exchange length wire mm-hmm. to, to then move toward whatever you're going to use next. And for me, like I said, in an ideal world, I use that, the coaxial guide catheter with inner five French catheter. Sorry. Yeah. Once you're, yeah. Once you're in the pulmonary artery, um, do you take pictures through the pigtail and then, and like, and just for people who, who may not know, like, say you're working, just talk about like your pulmonary angiography technique a little bit. Like when we mentioned it earlier a little bit, but like, what do you increase your frame rate to? What might be your injection rate? Yeah. Yeah. That's all great questions. So what I do start off with pressures. I usually skip the right heart pressures just to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. I just okay. don't find, I don't find that it's really changed my practice and you know what I plan to do. So I, I put my, once I get my pigtail into the, 
into the pulmonary arteries, I go each side, left and right, and measure pressures in both those vessels. When after I measure the pressure in the left or the right, whichever one it lands in first, I go ahead and take my first set of images there before I move to the other side. Mm-hmm. And really, it's all about where you land first is, is how I has how I do that. Pressures I utilize more for anything than just to adjust my frame, my injection rate. And so, you know, these patients can have pulmonary hypertension. So it's pretty important to go ahead and grab a set of pressures before you uh, make an injection. So I grab those, do my pulmonary angiography in the AP projection. And if Mm -hmm. I need to, I will do it in obliquity. Most of my obliquity work is done when I actually get closer to the lesion. And I find that to be much more helpful. Okay. These are even in small size. If you have a good breath hold, these are quite easy to see because uh, they're so abnormal, you know, and, and your eye picks up on them. So I think it's not that challenging, especially because we have good CT beforehand. It's not that challenging to find where they are. And so I don't waste a lot of contrast or radiation and doing an obliquity at the main pulmonary artery level, typically. Okay. And even if you know your lesion is on the left side, do you still take pictures of the right yeah, I do. And, and and the reason why is because a lot of times there's a question of something. So if you see, you're seeing a patient and you've reviewed their imaging and they have a, let, let's say, left PAVM, almost always they have a little nodule or something on the right that people question whether there's a pulmonary AVM there. So it seems to be useful to to get a set of images on both sides most of the time. Okay. All right. So now you've got your pictures. You are, oh, uh, one thing I wanted to back up. So yeah, even though like we, I don't, I can't tell you like the the pulmonary arterial pressures of like you know the theoretical patient that we're treating. What would be like a rough um, estimate of like what a frame, a reasonable frame um, injection rate for like a, yeah. a, a left main uh, pulmonary, sorry, uh, yeah, left pulmonary arterial injection? Yeah, I think the way I remember it best is I, I use kind of like a fifteen for thirty. You know, a lot of people are getting a little bit more familiar with it just because of PE work, but also, you know, you just kind of, th- I, I just think about what I adjust from the aorta a little bit, you know, so it's not too different, you know, 20 for 40 type thing in the aorta, if you're doing a good aortogram, but uh, a little bit lower. So a 15 for 30 is sort of my standard. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, frame rate, I usually bump it up to six frames per second, just for the, the, the larger runs, not for you know, during the treatment so much, but for those big wide view, looking at the whole big picture. Okay. All right. So you've got the lesion kind of in your crosshairs, you have your white Lumax catheter in, what are the, what are kind of the steps involved? Or can you talk a little bit, I guess, about how to get the pictures that you need or or get the catheter to where you want it to go and how sometimes it, you can get lost within the pulmonary arterial vasculature? Yeah, sure. So that's why I kind of like the guide catheter you know, coaxial technique is because you can really, once you, if you have stability with the guide catheter, you can really maneuver that five French catheter around. And I just have contrast on the back of it, of course, being sure to not have error uh, in my system. I I just kind of torque the catheter around. Mm -hmm. And, and, and honestly, this is a technique I picked up again from Scott, you know, just puffing and, and torquing the catheter in the general territory of where not only, you know, it was from CT, but you know, where it was from your pulmonary angiography. I can't emphasize enough. I, I made the mistake early on of not really paying attention to truly what segment it was in on CT. Mm-hmm. And I've been burned a couple of times by thinking like, oh, in general, that was right upper lobe. And really it was like, you know, right middle lobe, but the superior aspect of right middle lobe. And that, that makes a big difference because, you know, certain locations are a, a heck of a lot easier to treat than others making these like you know, complete 90 degree angle turns and wasting a lot of time injecting in the superior 
you know, in the upper lobe when it's really a middle lobe lesion type thing. So okay. all that's important. But once you, when, if you get, take all your information that's available to you, you know, just kind of torquing and puffing actually works really well. Okay. And so that's one of the things I was kind of getting at is that you don't necessarily lead with the wire throughout the pulmonary arterial vasculature and like, oh, once your once your catheter is seated, pull the wire out and puff. I mean, like, there's a little bit of like, you can just puff and kind of like push the catheter around a little bit if, if you have like some feel to it. And you know, you're not like ramming in. That's exactly right. Rarely mm-hmm. do I use a wire. But you know, if I if I actually get a good injection of a lesion, and it's not puffing forward well um, within that vessel, I might put in a gently put in a glide wire or something and advance my catheter over it. But typically, majority of this work is done without wires. Okay. All right. So once you're in position, and you've taken your pictures, and you feel like you, well, I guess we can back up a step and and say, whenever, like, we'll just say we have a simple or a, a single feeding vessel, where do you treat and what, how does that determine basically your choice of embolic? Yeah. So this is one of the keys to treating PAVMs is, is where to treat. I think, you know, depending on what catheter you can get there is it, you know, that's a big component of it. So if it's something, if it's a large feeding artery and it's a nice angle, you may be able to get all, you know, your guide catheter all the way there. And then you can think about a large plug and certainly those are efficient and uh, also very effective. If you're, if you're someplace in a smaller vessel or in an area that you have to turn back on your catheter, you know, you're headed one direction, you got to make a, a 90 degree mm-hmm. angle back medially. You might want to, you may, you may think about something that delivers through a, a five French catheter, like an 038 and interlumen, or you may even be thinking about a micro catheter. So that all those things really affect your decision on, on what you're going to use for embolic. Obviously the embolic that we're talking about is all mechanical. So mm-hmm. we're talking about either plugs or coils, and then you can get into you know, I trained with, without any detachable coils, which, you know, more power, more power yeah. to Scott. He was incredible in terms of knowing, you know, being able to a- accurately measure what he, uh, what the feeding artery was and, and being able to decide his coil placement based on that or his plug placement. I don't think I'll ever have that comfort level, no matter how many of these I treat. Sure. Just, But in any case, um, the key to where you treat is you really want to be as close to the sac as possible within the mm-hmm. feeding artery and certainly in less than a centimeter from the from the sac within the feeding artery. The reason for that is just, you know, persistence of these lesions has been shown to be greater or reperfusion of these lesions has been shown to be greater the further you are away from the that sac. I always, I, I never really understood and I, I don't think I really ever asked the question of Scott, you know, why... Uh, do we not coil the sack? I knew we didn't, I knew that we didn't need to coil the sack, but is it, was it harmful? Like, you know, why not? Right. Yeah. Or like we deliberately avoiding it or is it just like the feeding artery is adequate? That's right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and it just never got there, I guess, in my thought process until I was doing it myself. And what I came to learn is that it's wasteful time, it's wasteful money, but it's also can be really difficult to assess the PABM sack for regression or for persistence, you know, after the procedure on imaging. Yeah, you, so yeah, if you throw a bunch of metallic coils into it, that's right. And it, so since it's not necessary, I would, I would heavily, you know, suggest not doing it because it, it can be really challenging and it takes up a lot of time for absolutely no benefit. Okay. All right. So within a centimeter of the feeding or, or within a centimeter of the sack, and if, if you have your, if you have your druthers and like, you know, it's the ideal system 
what would you what would you embolize with? Like, what would be your ideal choices if if you can get any any catheter and you know it's it's just like a simple great angle and and so you can you can embolize it with whatever. Yeah, um, I'm still caught on the, on the at this moment on the word druthers. That's so Chris Beck like. In any case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to understand, you know, having been my fellow, we're going to edit this out. I mean, this is no, perfect. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go. Anyway. Yeah. So, you know, for efficiency and for ef- effectiveness, I think being able to put in a, a larger plug is wonderful. So an Amplatz or four is particularly useful, I think, in these scenarios because it's very effective. It can go through an 038 interlumen, which is, you know, usually a five French catheter. And so, you know, I think being able to use an Amplatz or four would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little more uh, stiff in terms of delivery than an MVP, a microvascular plug. So, you know, you really have to have stability and, and having stability through the heart is challenging because, you know, that sucker moves mm-hmm. um, all the time, but then also, you know, respiration changes things. You could pop right out of, out of a vessel in, in a, a split second with a, a deep breath and sometimes you have a lot of redundancy in the heart because of the way that you, you know, entered and got to where you got. Uh, so you have to be careful of those kind of things. And so every once in a while, even if you get the right size catheter to where you want to be in the transition of de- and deliver delivery process, you may buckle your system out. So I think I tend to u- tend not to use Amplatz or plugs only because, you know, I'm not at an HHT center of excellence where I do, you know, hundreds of these a year. And so sure. when I build my system, if I feel pretty confident and I might use an Amplatzer for if I don't, I'll, I'll use an MVP or, or just use coils, you know, and um, the key is a really dense pack of coils. If you're going to use coils, you have to, you really have to make sure, again, I learned the hard way that you heparinize these patients. So I'd always think, oh, you know, this little bit of flow that's left through this PVM, PAVM, that looks like a really dense pack of coils. This is going to shut down. And mm-hmm. you, you use that thought process in other places in the body. Absolutely. However, and, and, and because you have the excuse of heparin on board, but I learned the hard way that these, these tend to either maintain perfusion or recanalize. And so you really want to make sure if you're just going to use coils that you're using a, a really nice dense pack of coils and that when you're done, you do an injection, not only in that artery, but you back up some and look for anything that might be supplying it, surrounding it like a, another, another small pulmonary branch and make sure that you really have occlusion, even with heparin on board. Is there any consideration in terms of like whether you're treating with uh, coils versus one of the microvascular plugs to whether or not the streak artifact related to the embolic is going to obscure the um, the sac of the PAVM? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I think I forgot to mention it's one of the one of the benefits of using a plug, um, particularly the MVPs are much, create much less artifact than using coils. It's not a huge deal in in most patients, but, you know, patients who are having multiple treatments, you know, it can, it can affect imaging evaluation of other things later in life. Um, so certainly one of those, I would say minor advantages, but mm-hmm. definitely an advantage of using plugs. Okay. And then whenever you're embolizing the, the feeding vessel for people who haven't done as many of these, do you embolize like the entire vessel, like all the way back or like what's your end point? Like, is it just a nice t- tight coil pack where you're not seeing any uh, integrate flow or like I said, do you embolize all the way back to like a branch point? Yeah, there's lots of techniques uh, that you can utilize, especially if you're, you know, you're utilizing a detachable device. So the key is we talked about, you know, less than one centimeter from the sack. So that's number one. And and you can reposition anything that's detachable. So whether it be a detachable plug or detachable coil. So that's key. The second thing is 
I try to avoid any other branches because our devices are so good. If you get appropriate measurement based on all your imaging that you've done, you know, you can usually oversize a little bit and, and be spot on in terms of what you need. And so rarely do you have to make a switch and rarely do you have to use an adjunctive technique with a detachable device, like, you know, where you put it, put a coil into a, a branch adjacent to it and then coil back or something of that nature. So I try to avoid embolizing anything that's not necessary. You don't ever want to use one coil uh, that has been shown to have increased rates of, of conti- you know, persistence um, through the AVM persistent perfusion. So you want to use several coils or, you know, actually even in the plugs, plugs have been shown to have better efficacy if you use a backstop of a roughly a coil and a half is what it was on average. But point mm-hmm. being, if you use some coils behind a plug, so, you know, and those, those don't have to be of the ta- detachable variety, obviously, because sure. um, you've got your plug stop there already. But the key is, you know, looking around, if you have to embolize another segment, it's not a huge deal. But when you can avoid it, you know, I do. Okay, that's fair. All right. So you've, you've embolized, you've, you've documented with like a, a catheter in that in that pulmonary artery. Oh, actually, d- describe that. So you said like, once, once you've embolized, you pull back the, the five fringe catheter a little bit and then inject within that artery. And then you and you pull further back and do like a left pulmonary arterial or, you know, whatever ipsilateral side. Injection. Yeah, exactly. I usually do it at the low bar level just to make okay. sure that there's no other vessels that are supplying the sac because there can be or, sure. or something. You might even miss a feeder that's proximal, you know, that that's that's supplying the, the same pulmonary arteriovenous malformation. So you want to do a couple different levels of, of injections. And those I just do with my hand, you know, a hand injection. You don't have to necessarily set up the injector and do all that. One thing, Chris, that we didn't really cover that I should mention is when you're getting ready to embolize, you have your CT and you've done your measurements on that, but CT is really sensitive to pick up PAVMs. It's not as specific as when you get these really good images on pulmonary angiography. And when you get close to the lesion and and particularly where you think you might embolize, one thing that I like to do is I mag up once or twice and I cone down everything and I just focus on the lesion and I, I uncurl it. You know, so whether it be, I, in my experience, you almost always have to do some kind of cranial caudal tilt and an obliquity. And so, you know, either RAO or LAO and and really unfold the lesion because mm-hmm. it can be difficult to identify what is actually the feeding artery and what's actually sac. And also, you know, where that, that exact location is. And if you don't uncurl the whole thing, you know, you, you may treat what you think is uh, feeding artery going into sac and you might actually be more than a centimeter off if you, if you haven't laid it out properly. So mag up, cone down and, and uncurl it. Okay. That's a really good tip. So after you've embolized, you've taken your post shots as you're coming out, do you take pressures on the way out or I don't, uh, okay. just to be honest. Yeah, I, I really don't. I, I don't switch back to the pigtail. You know, when right. I do my final runs, I, I don't do that. And I also don't uh, switch back to do pressure measurements. Now, if I had a concern, you know, in somebody who had elevated pressures to begin with, that might be an issue. But in the patients I've treated, they've rarely had pulmonary hypertension to start. I'm sure that's uh, much more common in a uh, center of excellence. Okay. That's fair. All right. So all wires and catheters are out. What does your post-op care look like? Are these patients just in the recovery room for a couple of hours? Do you keep anyone overnight? Yeah, this is a same day procedure. They go Mm -hmm. home, you know, two hours later after their femoral puncture. And I I don't think I've ever kept anyone overnight in um, all my experience. They very rarely have side effects following the procedure. We call them about a week post-procedure 
just to make sure that they're not having any change in one, we want to know about any improvements. Every occasionally, patients who have significant hypoxemia, you know, actually notice an improvement. Or probably the most common improvement that I've seen has been in migraine headaches. So, you know, you'll you'll hear about some improvements, but also to just to make sure they're not having any discomfort post procedure. The most common side effect of this procedure is uh, pleurisy. And so, whether it be because of the you know embolized areas sort of rubbing against the the pleura or because you've caused a little pulmonary infarction in the segment you've treated, one way or the other, about 5 to 15% of patients have pleurisy after the procedure, and it's self-limited, and you can also treat with anti-inflammatories. Rare for any other complication to occur, and I kind of separate that out as complication versus side effect, kind of two different things. I, I kind of put pleurisy in the in the side effect category. Complication-wise, you know, the feared one is, is why you're closing the PAVM in the first place, which is paradoxical embolus. Pretty uncommon. And, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, right away. As far one thing that I didn't ask you, as far as your technique, like if you are doing over the wire exchanges, um, do you go as far as, is it just like meticulous technique, like something you would use if like you were doing like diagnostic cerebrals or, or are you doing like, you know, keeping the, the wires and I kind of already know the answer to this, but do you keep the wires and catheters like underwater for underwater exchanges or anything like that? Yeah. So I think meticulous technique is really important. And, and, and this goes, this is important to talk about for a couple of reasons. One is like you said, the technique and the other is how many lesions do you treat in a, in a single session? And the answer to that is I, I double flush everything. I keep my catheter hubs always, you know, full of contrast or saline. I uh, flick air bubbles out of everything, whether I can see any or not, you know, that kind of thing. And also I, I'm one of those people who, instead of taking out a wire under under saline, I just flush very vigorously as the wires are removed and I make mm-hmm. sure I time it, you know, right so that you don't hear that <laughs> yeah, horrible yeah, that sound. Of, sound yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so so that's the way that I do it in terms of technique. The other thing is is wiping wires to make sure there's no clot on them. And then lastly, I would say, and then most importantly, you know, sometimes you're going to get patients who do have HHT and they have multiple lesions. And even if they're simple, you know, you kind of have to decide, are you going to go after all of them or are you going to just treat, you know, one or two and, and how that works best for you? I think in, in centers of excellence, they'll describe in some of the papers, you know, you should treat at least four, you should really treat all of them if possible in a single session. But my comfort level is once my uh, level of attentiveness is decreased in any way, this is not a place that I find that acceptable. So, you know, I just, if I'm, if I'm feeling like I, I can't do my meticulous technique as well. I don't have my diligence as high. I just, I, I stop and I bring them back and treat the other lesions. Yeah. I think that's, I, it, it, there's one thing I learned uh, about being in private practice that sometimes you don't have either the the personal bandwidth or the the capacity to spend as much time on cases. And so you kind of learn to stage things out and pick your battles and, you know, try not biting off more than you can chew because uh, it may not be this way at UAB and it wasn't that way at Georgetown, but in my private practice, sometimes you're like on an island. And so the idea of like digging into a case and spending like four hours on it, I mean, as thing, other things are piling up can be a little daunting. That's right. So follow-up wise, you mentioned that you call the patients uh, a couple of days or maybe a couple of weeks after. And then after that, what does your follow-up look like in terms of like, when are you seeing these patients back in clinic? And then from, from there on out, like how often are you imaging the, you know, doing any cross-sectional imaging? Yeah. So I see after that one week, roughly one week follow-up phone call, 
I see a patient back at six months along with a CT. People widely debate whether you need a CT with contrast or just a, a non-contrast thin slice CT. And, you know, you could go either direction here. I, I don't require a contrasted study pre-procedure, but post-procedure, I really like it to look for perfusion. Mm-hmm. So there are other signs, you know, sac regression and decrease in volume and all that kind of stuff, but, and, and vein size, uh, vein regression. But I really like a contrasted CT at six months to, to see how things lie. After that, you actually can space imaging out and clinic visits out to, to five years if a patient particularly if a patient has no other uh, PAVMs and doesn't have HHT, you still follow patients, even if they have an acquired PAVM or a congenital PAVM that's not related to HHT, you still follow them at five years. And the reason why is because, you know, about 20% of them or so recanalize or reperfuse in some way. And so you need to know that. So, so about five-year intervals for follow-up. Okay. How often have you found that you are, you said like 20% uh, recanulized, like, does that mean like one in five patients you're, you're bringing back for another procedure? No, uh, that means in that, in that five years. Um, so patients can have, like we talked about before, they can have growth of imperceptible PAVMs in that time, or they can have, um, like I said, over about 20% over you know, a lengthy amount of time, I don't know exactly what amount of time, probably about, about that five-year interval, will need a retreatment, but not immediate. So most okay. of them are, at the time that you do your six-month follow-up CT, the vast majority of patients definitely have complete closure and don't need a retreatment. But over a five-year period, you're probably going to get to about 20% of those lesions needing a retreatment. Okay, that's fair. So as we're kind of winding up, one of the questions I had to ask you was, is, what is your best advice for interventional radiologists who feel comfortable doing this procedure, but may not be at a center of excellence in terms of like, what advice would you give them in terms of like, are, is it a good, is this a good service to provide or is this just a procedure that's a little bit academic? Because if you're not at a big academic center, an HHT uh, center, you should be referring these patients out. Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that a lot of people don't know the answer to. And I certainly um, had the same question. Scott Tertola, I would tell him this to his face so I can say it here. He told me uh, any PABM should be referred to an HHT Center of Excellence. And he said, but if you're going to do it, call me. And so I called him my first year as an attending and um, kind of, you know, step through the procedure. Like I said, you got to have good notes. You got to refer to him because you don't do these that commonly. Is it too early to say, listen to my podcast? No, not too early. Too early. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll splice it out and we'll put it in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you want to you want to talk to, I would say, your nearest center of excellence. And the reason why is because it's good to establish that relationship with them anyway, because you are going to refer patients there when they have, you know, complex PAVMs or, or you suspect HHT. Those patients, you're going to make that referral regardless, whether they decide to go or not, you're going to offer them that opportunity. So those are the best people, I think, to establish a relationship with. And if you if you talk to that interventionalist, then you can go over some tips and tricks with them and make sure you've got the equipment that you need. You know, you're, you're doing the pre-procedure things that you need and, and also doing the correct follow-up. So I think that's uh, really key to this, to, to getting involved in this practice. But I would also say that, you know, I would argue against um, individuals who say that all these should be treated at a center of excellence only because you're going to have a certain part of your patient population that's going to want treatment within the state that they're in. And right now where we stand, there's not a center of excellence in every state. So I, I would argue that this is a skill an interventionist should keep up with as best they can. 
And um, it applies to other things like renal AV fistulas and other high flow lesions. So I think it's a good skill to have. And one of the things that I also wanted to uh, get you to touch upon is that, you know, especially like a place like UAB, it's not necessarily a lack of IR skill set in that it's a in that like specifically an HHT center can be as much as like, you know, the other services that revolve around HHT, right? A hundred percent. It's multidisciplinary participation. And even if you um, are well-versed and you train someplace where you did a lot of this and are well-versed in how to work up the patient, how to do the treatment, how to follow them, you will find times where you really need to rely on other services that just aren't as well-versed in this type of patient. For example, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. I, I had a patient who had HHT and didn't want to go to another, to a center when I was at Georgetown and I was able to, you know, treat her PABMs. I was able to, you know, to do the appropriate follow-up. And she wasn't somebody who had manifestations that needed ENT. So pretty straightforward, but she developed hepatic AVMs. And if you are, you know, those who know, you know, that know that hepatic AVMs are one of the few places that IRs don't treat. So they're no touch lesions. And um, you have to know that. And then Mm -hmm. you also have to be able to know where, where to plug that patient in because they can actually develop uh, portal hypertension and ascites and even high output cardiac failure. So you have to plug them into the right resources. And when I tried to do that, I I was faced with some challenges of just other clinicians, this not being something that they wanted to focus on. Sure. Absolutely. Oh, also the thing I have to talk about any uh, resources, like as far as like research papers that you've liked either, you know, very specific ones or, or ones that kind of give you a roundabout like idea of how to do the procedure. Yeah, it's a great question. I would start, you know, actually, I think the, the Moro, you know, textbook on interventional radiology has, it's, it was updated in 2020. It has a really good chapter written on, on PABM embolization. So start there, then next move on to some of the publications. And I, I, I think Scott's publications are really good. Trertola, he has two that I relied on heavily. One is from 2010 yeah, and one's yeah. from 2013. The 2010 one is like an update on pulmonary embolization, AVM embolization, and, you know, kind of came after the guidelines that were established and just prior to that. So I think that's a really good paper to kind of, to, that talks about how to do it and, and what considerations, a lot of which we talked about today. Mm -hmm. And then the paper from, I think it was from radiology in 2013 that he wrote, looks at persistent lesions reperfused lesions and when to treat them and, and what those results look like. And so I think from if you combine those two, you sort of get a how to do it on the typical case and then, you know, how to treat it when when you're not successful or what to do when you're not successful. So I think those are two key articles. I, I think it's also important to look at literature outside of interventional radiology. So kind of know what what's up to date in terms of the pulmonary journals, um, if there's anything more recent. But but those are the two that I've relied upon kind of religiously. Okay. And we'll make sure um, I have both those articles. We'll make sure we link to them in the show notes for anyone who's listening. All right. Teresa, I was also going to give you a chance. I know that in the past, like you've been super involved with SIR and like specifically some like fundraising aspects of SIR. Is there anything you want to plug in terms of like SIR or, you know, make like, you know, what SIR does for like the interventional radiology community and how important it might be to, you know, help participate in those fundraising efforts? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity. So I think What I'd like to say is that the society and the foundation are two separate entities that work in conjunction. So a lot of people don't know what the foundation is, uh, this SIR foundation is, and we're really the research arm kind of looking into the future of of where we want to be with interventional radiology. You know, it's really important that we support the foundation so that we can get there. 
And as you, as most people know who listen to these podcasts, interventional radiology, we tend to be a little behind in terms of, you know, really large uh, prospective randomized trials compared to other specialties. And we tend to be behind in funding f- for those. And, you know, so, but we have, we have, we're really equipped with the right people and the brains and, you know, the, the in, inventions that we need, um, those kind of minds. We just need people to support the foundation so that uh, we can take it to the next level in terms of the type of research that we're able to produce. Awesome. All right, Teresa, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure having you. To the audience, guys, thank you for thank you so much for listening. We covered an important, a large topic today. If you enjoyed it but want to check out more, we're going to have show notes to this episode. Those can be found at www.backtable.com. We'll have links to any articles which we referenced. If you enjoyed the podcast but want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps um, platforms like iTunes or Spotify that know that you, our audience, you value what we're doing and you're uh, interested in getting our latest content as we're putting it out there. If you're getting a ton of value from these podcasts and really want to support the show, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. We love the feedback. We'll see you next time on the Back to Build Podcast. Thanks, guys.